0: You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. So this morning, we're going to leap into uh, a place in the Bible that I'm not not sure how many of us have been before, into a chapter called Thessalonians. For many of you, it will be the first time that you will be introduced to uh, one of the newest churches that was launching in the first century Middle Eastern world. Uh, at a time when the church was beginning to expand and grow under the the leadership of people like Paul and Timothy and others. This is a church that was started in what was uh, a pretty hostile to Christianity, to to Jesus followers region of the Middle East at the time that it started. Uh, This is a church that also experienced unbelievable growth and explosion, where lives were transformed in ways that just going to church doesn't do. It takes the actual power of God. And not just lives being transformed, but a whole city being transformed. The Apostle Paul, who is one of the authors of the Bible, many of you know this, but some of you may not, uh, he makes up much of the writing in what's called the New Testament part of the Bible, originally letters that he wrote to the churches that he was a part of starting. And his very first letter ever is the letter that we're going to look at today, written to this group of Thessalonians in this region called Thessalonica. And it, as Paul writes to them, a large part of what he writes to them about is, is much of what we just sang, to To celebrate them for living this way. They weren't perfect in everything. Nobody is. Even sometimes their their falling was at least falling in the right direction, falling forward. But but he's writing to them to celebrate them because this is a group of people saying, this is who we want to be. We want to be the people that won't let the rocks outcry us, that we will say, so will I, so will I. And it was just completely transforming their way of life, transforming their families, transforming their marriages, transforming their neighborhoods. It was transforming their entire city. It was flipping Thessalonica, really, in many ways, upside down. And so their story and what it has to do with our story is really the content of the next couple of weeks of the series that we're starting this morning. So I just want to pray for a minute. We're going to ask that God would make sense of this story and these people and their lives that really lived, really suffered, really sacrificed and really gave it all for Jesus and how we can learn from it. So Father, I come before you this morning and just acknowledge that I do wanna be that kind of a person. That my life really is lived in such a way as to say, so will I, so will I, so will I. If everything else in creation bends to your voice, then so will I, responds to your voice, then so will I. And God, I pray, thanking you also for your unbelievable level of patience with me for the times that I don't. For the times that my heart says, so will I, and my life does something else. God, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your tender heart towards us. Thank you also for the example of our ancestors who have gone before us, our ancestors of the faith, like the Thessalonians, who also learned to live their lives in such a way as to say, so will we. And God, I pray that as we lean into their account this morning, that you would just lean into us, that you would teach us, that you would speak to us. I believe that you're present. I believe that you're here. I believe that you can be heard. I believe you can be known. And so God, I pray that you would help us to hear you. And I pray, even knowing that I have much to say, you would cut through it so that your voice is what we hear loudest. Your voice is what we hear the clearest. God, I really mean this. If there's anything that I plan to say that isn't what you once said, take it away. Replace it with what you want. I want my words to be true to Jesus and true to your scriptures. I want them to be beneficial to us. And so, God, we all need you. We need your voice. We need your leading. We need your love. And I pray whether we're convinced that there is a you to love us or we're trying to figure that out, you'd meet us where we're at and you'd help lead us to that next place in our journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to take up our offering this morning and uh, just take a minute to really just celebrate and thank you. Appreciate you for all the ways that we're able to make a difference because of you. Uh, If you were here a few minutes ago when we talked about school partners and uh, just our partnership with that, we have an unbelievable ability. Uh, that's been created for us to partner with a lot of the schools in the region. Just, that's just one example of so many others where, I mean, we, we're doing what God called us to do, which, continue to remind you, is much more than just being in this place and in these walls on a Sunday morning. But we're able to do it because of you. Like, Kensington is not this. Kensington is, is you. It's us together. And so everything that we ever get to do as a church Like, we've done it. We get to do it together, and we're making it happen. So as always, just thank you. Thank you for generosity, whether you're giving online or you're giving in the buckets as they pass by. If you're not a part of it, we'd love to have you join us in this. If you're still trying to figure out church, and you're like, yeah, I'm not there yet, that's great, too. Just take from us. That's our desire. Take from us. Our God, he's a giver. He's not a taker. These aren't moments that are about us trying to take anything. It's us really believing God gave, and we're giving back. And as we do... More and more people are knowing about Jesus in real ways. So that's what this moment's about. Appreciate all of you that are part of it. All right, we got lots to do. One person told me this morning they felt like they were drinking a little bit from a fire hose. But Thessalonians is an incredible book. There is so much to try to understand about this church and about what was happening here just historically in addition to what Paul directly writes to them that I think we also need to learn from. And, And this will build the foundation of the next several weeks of the series that we'll be in there's two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians 1, Thessalonians 2. We're gonna hang in the first letter for the next couple weeks. So I've got a little bit of work to do, I think, to try and help us really make sense of why this letter matters. Why of all the things that God could have intended to be in this book that finds its way into our hands all these thousands of years later, why this account of these people? So I'm gonna try and do that as best I can, as quick I can. So let me start with really the fourth chapter that is kind of the pinnacle of what I want us to see, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit for the morning, why what Paul says in the first few verses of his fourth chapter is so important for us, as well as it was for them. So chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, by the way, if you're like, I have no idea where to find Thessalonians, all good, it's all going to be up on your screen all morning for you to find, but as you can see my Bible, pretty close to the end, so there you go. Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact, you are. He says, we came here and we told you how to live in a way that would be pleasing to God. And I'm here to tell you, way to go. Like, you're doing it. But then he goes on and he says this, now we ask you, and then he changes language and he makes it more tense, and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Do this more and more. That's what we're going to hang on for a little bit this morning. So just, can you help me give the message a little bit from the room? Just say this out loud. Some of you are like, I hate saying things out loud. Well, then don't say things out loud. But if you do, then say it. Say this with me. Ready? Say, do this this more and more. more more. So in the Bible, the New Testament part of the Bible has 27 books. Of those 27 books, the Apostle Paul is credited for having written 13 or 14 of them. So a massive amount of what was written in the New Testament came from this man, Paul. Paul who wrote to the churches that he was a part of helping start. And in his writings, he developed a reputation for, for basically having a, an in-your-face kind of, kind of strength when he would write. As a matter of fact, it was known about Paul that in his writings, he was often stronger than he was in person. He just had a way with words. He had a way when he, when he got to pen and paper, like he just got to the point. And so oftentimes what Paul's doing, because the church is new and it's growing, the collection of these people called the way, the followers of Jesus, like this is a new movement. And so much of Paul's writing is to try to help people understand who they are to be, who Jesus was, what it means to follow him, how they're to love one another, how they're to love the world. And so oftentimes as Paul writes, he's writing to correct them. He's writing to show them where they've maybe gotten off, or where they've wandered away, or where there is a break between what it means to be a Jesus follower and just be a person of the world not following him. And so th- there is this kind of reputation that you can almost imagine that if you got a letter from Paul, you know, there's a little bit of like, oh boy, there's a letter from Paul. Who's opening that one? So there's even, like today, there's memes that go around with jokes about Paul. Maybe you've even seen this one. This is just kind of some of the tone of Paul at times that you get out of his letters. If Paul could see the American church today, we'd be getting letter. So there's this idea that Paul was only ever the heavy. Like if Paul wrote, it was bad. But the thing is, that's not entirely true. Like much of what Paul would write was also encouraging. It was uplifting. Paul wasn't just the heavy. Now here's what's super interesting. This letter that he writes, 1 Thessalonians, we believe was actually the very first letter that he ever wrote to any of the churches. And the majority of this letter that originally didn't have chapters and verses, we added all that so that it's easier to kind of navigate through, but it would have been broken up into five sections. Those five sections have now become the five chapters. But of those five chapters, the first three are almost entirely encouragement. It's Paul celebrating this young church, saying, you're doing it, way to go, well done, I can't believe it, I appreciate you, I'm in admiration of you. Like, that's the overwhelming majority. Chapters 4 and chapters 5, he does get into a little bit of correction where there's some things that he wants to say, hey, okay, here's some things that you do need to know. Here's some things that we do need to avoid. Here's some things that we do need to employ in our life as followers of Jesus. But what I love about this is this first letter ever written by Paul to one of the churches kind of breaks this idea that all he ever came to do was, was bring the hammer over your head. He came in with a ton of encouragement to this church. There's a couple things I think are important to understand about, again, the history of this church and who they are as a people, as much as some of the stuff that Paul literally and specifically writes to them. For example, this is a church that, as Paul writes to and spends time with, that you begin to realize, experience some of the most incredible amounts of transformation, not just in their personal lives, but in their region, like their families, their neighborhoods, their literal city. This is a church experience Some of the most incredible forms of transformation Of any of the churches that Paul ever worked with Or wrote to But here's what's also interesting Especially in light of that Is that this is one of the churches That Paul spent the least amount of time with Of any of the churches that he helped start Actually only about three weeks time In, in another book in the Bible Because you've got to bounce around a little bit To find this, the full story of this church If you go to a book called Acts and Acts chapter 17 And we will be back in Thessalonians You might want to Kind of earmarked that somehow, but Acts chapter 17, this is the story and the account of when Paul first walks into Thessalonica and begins to share the story of Jesus. Verse 1 says this, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, there you go, uh, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and was there three Sabbath days as he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So, so Paul's there, says, over three Sabbaths. That's the three weeks. That's where we get the time frame that he was with them. But what began to happen is as Paul comes in and he starts to share, both on the weekends, he's there on the Sabbath, he's sharing, groups are gathering, but he's also there during the week. He's making friendships, he's in people's homes, he's in local marketplace, and he's beginning to share about Jesus and who he was and why he had to die and that he rose again. And as this happens, it's beginning to work. Like people are responding, they're starting to come, they're showing up, they're leaning in, they're listening, and more and more are starting to come. And there's very quick transformation that's beginning to happen. And so what also begins to happen is the city leaders begin to take note. Other Jewish leaders begin to take note. The Jews themselves begin to take note. And, and a lot of people aren't happy with this. Because it's beginning to change the landscape in a very subtle way at this point early on. But it's beginning to potentially change the landscape of all of Thessalonica, not just a small group of religious people. And the religious leaders, and as well as city leaders even, they've already seen this happen in other cities, where, where the way it's called, or these Christians have come in, and they've started to share the gospel, people are giving their lives to Jesus, starting to follow him, groups are beginning to form, these things called the church are starting to grow, and what begins to happen is it starts to disrupt the way of life in, in certain cities, even commerce. As people start to wander away from how they used to live and what their money and their time and their attention went to, and now it goes to things that would be more in line with who Jesus is and what he would want. Like, for example, as they walked away from maybe temple prostitution or as they walked away from buying idols to take to certain gods, like it had an impact on the economy of the city. And so as the city leaders in Thessalonica are watching this happen in other places and then they see this small group of Christians begin to rapidly grow and be attracted to Paul, they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to put the stop to this real quick. And so they decide, we've got to drive this thing into the ground, and we've got to drive him out of town. So on your screens, this was their reaction to the whole situation. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. And they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason out and some of the brethren. to the rulers of the city crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. See, this is their reputation, and this is why they're frustrated. This is where I'm saying. They're watching this begin to happen in other places. The impact of the growing church, in in their terms, is turning the world upside down. We would say, for Jesus, they're actually turning things right side up. But these city leaders and these other Jews are going, no, 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 not here. We don't want these people here that are turning the world upside down everywhere else. He goes, so Jason, he's harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, Even saying there's another king, Jesus. And they were troubled at the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So what they ended up doing is they drove him out of the city. So the city leaders and these Jews came together and did everything they could to squash this. And then Paul, after only three weeks' time, was driven right out of the city. This is not a a good strategic plan for planting and starting a new sustainable church is only be there three weeks and then peace out and tell them you're on your own. But Paul gets driven out of the city, he's gone for a season, several months later, he sends one of his partners, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to see what's been happening. And you can imagine that as he's expecting a report, he's probably assuming it's not going to be good. He was only there three weeks, there's only so much you can do in three weeks' time. 2006, I was a part of a team that planted a church, and I know the amount of work that went into the year and a half it took just to get to our opening day to go public and launch. So he's only there three weeks. I can't imagine if somebody said, you got three weeks to start a church. I'm like, well, that ain't going to happen. Like, three weeks' time, he's probably not assuming a great report. But what's incredible is Timothy sends back a report that not only is the church still there, they've not been driven into the ground, they've not been driven out of the city like Paul, they're still there, and they are thriving. And more than thriving, they're exploding, like the church is growing wildly. It, it's literally beginning to undo the framework of the city in some ways. Like they're having such transformation. This isn't just like in the walls of a building on Sunday morning, they're having really cool church services, and then they go home and it means nothing the rest of the week. Like this is a group of men and women growing, being transformed, and the city is realizing it, recognizing it, responding to it, and is also beginning to transform around them. It's pretty incredible. And I think in in so many ways, part of what we need to learn from this group of really our ancestors, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that should remind us from their time till now until Jesus comes back again is this. The potential and the power of what Jesus can do in our lives and through our lives, in the lives and through the lives of a committed person group of followers of his. Listen, listen. It does not require all of the flash and the performance that we tend to think it does. It just doesn't. Especially if I can if I can be bold and honest enough to say, especially in the Western culture with what we have done to church. In our Western culture, we know this, right? We are we are far more entertainment-driven than much of the rest of the world. I would even suggest that in the Western world, we oftentimes are entertainment-consuming junkies, always looking for the next thing. It's why our attention spans are so short. It's why we constantly need new technology. It's why we have turned into even people when we come in the church that are more critics than we are followers. It's why it becomes so easy for us to believe that the power of God to transform our lives, our families, our cities requires all of this. And yet, you look at this early church and they had none of it. Absolutely none of it. They had no organized kids' ministry, they had no buildings, they had no playscapes in the lobby, they had no organized small groups. They had no video teams. They had no incredible bands. They had none of it. And to boot on top of it, what they did have was they had an entire city that was against them, that marginalized them, that pushed their thumb down on them, and that tried to drive them away. And yet for all that they lacked and all the persecution and the resistance against them, they literally did become what they were threatened and rumored to become, which is a group of men and women so committed to Jesus that they flipped the world upside down. You go, well, how in the world did they do that? How did they do that? Well, chapter 1, verse 5 tells us how they did it. If you go back to the text, this is what we read as Paul starts off his letter to the Thessalonians. So he says, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words. So Paul's saying, listen, I did come to you. I spoke. I did my part. I did what I can do. I did my thing. That was him doing what we do, right? He did his thing. I did my part. I spoke. I shared But here's what he also says, and this is the key to what happened to transform this group of people. He says, not only did I come to you simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. I came to you with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Hear me say this. I am I'm super thrilled with what the modern world has afforded us and allowed us and invented for us to be able to utilize and adapt into what it means to do, to be, and to go to church, both inside these walls and outside these walls. I'm, I never suggest, not now or ever, that we should just go to a boring church, turn the lights on bright, get rid of Matthias, because you guys are like, I like that guy. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The problem is this is that when we come to believe that all of this is what we need more than what we need being the power of the Holy Spirit to create deep conviction in our lives that draws us to God so that he can bring us into relationship and then do his ongoing work of transformation, then we've forgotten what the power of the gospel is and where the power of the gospel is. That's what we need. All of this, I love it. It's amazing, it's beneficial, it's helpful, but you have histories of churches that had none of it and they transformed the globe. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit working to draw our hearts to God that he could do his ongoing work of transformation. I have a friend of mine that says this phrase all the time. He says, he's a pastor, he says, I want my people to believe more than anything else if they just get their friends to church on a Sunday morning, then they may meet Jesus. Now I get what he's saying. And I sure hope. I want. I want you to bring your friends. I want you to invite your friends. Maybe some of your friends are sitting here. And I hope if you don't know Jesus, you're going to come to know him. But you know what I want more than anything else is for the belief of all of us not to be, if I could just get my friends here, then they'd come to know Jesus. If I could just believe in the power of the gospel coming from my mouth and out of my lifestyle, my friends in the office space might meet Jesus. My friends in my neighborhood might meet Jesus. My friends in my family that will never walk through these doors might meet Jesus. The power of the gospel was never meant to be contained in these walls, but in you outside of these walls. That's what Paul writes to the church when he says they're flipping everything upside down and they got nothing. That's one of the things we should always remember and be, I think, charged with from our ancient ancestors that followed Jesus in Thessalonica. Here's the second thing. I'll tell it to you and then I'll explain it to you. I think we should be men and women that are always at the ready to celebrate the process of transformation and not just the conclusion of it. And here, Here's what I mean. If you go back again to Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me see the first couple of verses. Here's what Paul says. He says Paul and Silas and Timothy, so he's saying here's who's writing to you, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. He says, "We always, like listen to these words. We always thank God for all of you and continually mentioning you in our prayers. Here's what's fascinating about Paul as he writes in both letters. As he writes to the Thessalonians, it's very clear that he has a deep and a profound respect and affection for them. Like he's looking at this group of people going, you guys are killing it. I am so proud of you. He's acknowledging the work that God's doing in their life, and he celebrates it. In many ways, I would even say as you read this and you read other letters, I think he gives to the Thessalonians some of the highest levels of praise, acknowledgement, and celebration for what he sees in them and through them. Now, here's what's fascinating. I think in life, we have a tendency to reserve a lot of our praise and acknowledgement of other people until they get over certain bars, like, until they get to certain accomplishments and achievements, right? We, we tend to praise the higher bars you get over, the higher we will praise you. The more bars you climb, the more ladders you climb, the more acknowledgement that you get. We, this is just a general way that we relate in life. It's why we have a tendency to, to celebrate and acknowledge and praise the larger companies over the smaller companies, You might go, well, no, I like the mom-pop shops. Like we got to give more to them. Until you're on vacation and need a certain kind of toothpaste that they don't have, and then you wish there was a mire, right? We tend to celebrate the accomplished more than what we would term as the under-accomplished. It's why we also tend to celebrate, for example, the recovering addict or recovered addict, as opposed to the one that's still in process. It's why we tend to celebrate the young entrepreneur more than we celebrate and acknowledge and elevate the the 30-year-old still living at home in mom and dad's basement. It's why we tend to acknowledge and accomplish and celebrate the, the student who's in all honors classes more than we would the student who needs tutoring. Like there's a mentality that we have that the higher the bars are that you get over, the higher up the ladder, the more you will be celebrated. And we do this spiritually as well. We end up creating these bars that people have to get over. And the bars are how you talk and the language you use and how you live and how you behave. Things that aren't per se bad or wrong. But we create these bars. And until you've gotten over the bars in what we would term acceptable ways, you talk the right way, stop doing certain things, then we will reserve the highest levels of acknowledging God's work in people's life or celebrating God's work or praising them or elevating them even. We kind of withhold that until you've gotten over the bar. Here's what's interesting. Paul doesn't do that with this group of people who in many regards, although they're killing it in some ways, or in other ways, are far from getting over the bar. Like when Timothy comes back and makes report to Paul, part of his report is not just they're there, they're thriving, it's exploding, it's amazing. Part of his report was also, and there's some things we need to address. Like for example, the fact that there was some squabbling over Paul. Like Paul, this is a guy that's got a history. Before coming to Jesus, he had a history. That history has a reputation, And so there's a lot of people in Thessalonica that have very little regard and respect for Paul. Even some of these early Christians beginning to gather, Paul's the guy that started the whole thing there. Like, he's the man there, and yet there's people that are bad-mouthing him. And so Timothy says, well, you've got some people that are kind of undercutting your authority. So Paul says, all right, I'll address that in chapter 2. And he does. There's also the reality that as Timothy does his investigative work, he realizes there are some practices among the Thessalonians that look less like Jesus and more like the culture around them especially some of their sexual practices. So he says to Paul, I think, uh, I think we probably should address some of the sexual practices. Paul says, okay, I will. Chapter 4, he begins to do that. There's also the reality that part of what Timothy begins to see is that there is, there is some belief that they have that's starting to get wrong. It's deviating from what's actual truth about who God is, who Jesus is, when he's going to return. Things that we would call today doctrines and theologies, they don't believe all the right doctrines. They don't believe all the right theology. Matter of fact, they believe some theology and doctrine that's wrong, and they think it's the right things. And so Paul says, all right, I'll address that, and he does in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So here's my point. Paul's not writing to a group of people that's just nailing it on every level. He's not writing to a group of people that has arrived among their journey is also a lot of things that they're, they're kind of slipping on. They need to be corrected on. They need to be instructed on. They need to realize, oh, that's of the world. That's not of Jesus. And yet he still praises and celebrates them. I mean, because the work that's being done in them by God may have just begun, but what Paul identifies and acknowledges is it has definitely begun. Here's, here's the point point. here's the principle. I think that you and I, need to be people that do a much better job of celebrating God's work in someone's life even when we see that there's a lot of work still to be done. Because what we tend to do is we see all the work that still has to be done and then we just point at that. This is where we withhold. Like, well, I mean, when you get better at that, when you stop doing this, when you stop acting that way, then, and, and Paul, where does he start? First three chapters, not there. He starts with acknowledging what God's doing. I think think the church would explode in so much more potential if we would be men and women more committed to acknowledging and celebrating and praising the work that God is doing in people's lives and not just pointing out what he isn't or what he doesn't seem to be or what they're not allowing him to. I want to also say this too. I think we need to get better at acknowledging and celebrating the work that God's doing in our own life regardless of how much more he needs to do. If you're anything like me, and I, I bet many of you probably are, like you have made a full-time job out of beating yourself up, and you work overtime. Like we just do. And we live in a way of life and in a culture that breeds it many times. We never, we're never enough. We're never enough as moms and dads. We're never enough as husbands and wives. We're never enough in our jobs. We're never enough in our hobbies. We're, never, we're just never enough. And everything about this world seems to enforce that. And then the loudest voice of all often comes from our own mind. You know, my personality, I will tell you, I am the loudest critic in my head, constantly. I I have done an unbelievable job, master's class level, of beating myself up throughout the course of my life, that I'm not good enough and I need to do better. One of the greatest works that God is constantly up to in my life is letting me rest in his arms as my dad, who loves me and is proud of me. And to even say that out loud rubs against something inside me that doesn't want to believe it. And I just have found that that's so true for so many of us. And if there's anything you could do out of today more than any other that might have impact in your life and your relationship with Jesus, it is to cut yourself a break and let God's voice and whisper and his affection for you be a voice louder than your own critical one. He is a father who adores you. And you go, but you don't know how much I've still got to go. He does. You don't know where I came from, but you're not there anymore. But I'm not where he wants me to be, but you're not where he took you from. There's a verse in the Bible that says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know what that promise means? He's always at work in you. Even those times it feels like you're just on the hamster wheel. You feel like you're in a season of pause or hold. He's working. And if you could just learn to sit in the joy that he has over you, and sometimes you just have to force yourself into that. I'm telling you, this last week, I, I really am trying lately to just, to push out the critical voice and just ask God, let me hear your pleasure voice over me, your voice of affection, your voice of fatherly care, your voice of affirmation, your voice of celebrating where you have accomplished work in my life. And I'm telling you, those moments, when I hear that voice, That does more to draw me to God than anything that my critical voice tries to do to push me to him. I think we need to not only have the ability like the Thessalonians and Paul with them to praise and celebrate the work God's doing in others' lives, but to praise and celebrate the work God's doing in ours, regardless of how much he still has yet to do. There's a lot to be done, but there's a lot that he has also already done. And so as Paul's writing to this group and he's celebrating what's doing, the the point isn't that they've gotten it all right or that they're perfect. What he's celebrating is that this is a group of people that they are responding to Jesus. If he says it, they do it. Their response is what we sang, then so will I, then so will I, oh, this is what you do, okay, then so will I, oh, this is how we do, okay, then so will I, this is how we love people, okay, so will I, this is how we forgive people, okay, so will I, this is how we give to others, their benefit, okay, so will I, like this is the life they're living, so Paul says, here's what I'm celebrating, as you keep doing that, God is transforming you more and more, and as he transforms you, do, do you see, he's transforming the landscape around you. And as that's happening, here's what's interesting, is that Paul takes note of a couple of things that I think for him become the epicenter of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be growing in Christ, the transformation that occurs in us, and then the transformation that occurs through us. So I'll take you back again to chapter 4 to see it. Chapter 4, where we started this morning, Paul said this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact... You are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this and more. So Paul's indicating, he says, do this. He's indicating you're, you're doing something. And that's what I'm telling you. Do that and do more of it. And he's like leaned in. He hasn't given the definition of the description here, but he's saying this. Like he's looking at Thessalonians. He's going this. Like this is how you live. You know the moments in life when you see something or Maybe it's a meme online or it's a picture or it's a quote you read or like you experience something and it, it, that's what it makes you do. Like it resonates with you and so you go, this, this, right? You know all the moments, right? It's the, it's the thumb up or the finger up to the post above. You're like, this. It's like the, I think a lot of that started with the uh, Alabama mom a couple years ago posted a picture the first day back to school with her kids and it like spread like wildfire online. We've all seen like recreations of this, right? This is the kind of stuff that makes you say what? <laughs> this, yeah. Or, or maybe it's just, it's a picture of the place that just restores your soul. I find that most people either like the woods or the water, they either like the ocean or the cabin. Like for some of you, you look at the cabin and you're like this. Some of you look at the beach house and you're like this, all right? Or, or it's statements. It's, it's, it's things of truth that we hear that just resonate. Like, I remember watching Braveheart years ago, and that, you remember that one line when he's in jail, and the princess comes? And she's like, they're going to kill you. And he's like, every man dies. But then he looks at her, and he goes, and this is it. He goes, but not every man truly lives. Right, that's, just like, that's a this kind of statement, this. Or, or it's this last Wednesday, and what we experienced here when we had so many people get in the waters outside And publicly dedicate their life to Jesus. As a church, it makes those of us that believe this is what we're called to do is walk with one another into devotion to Jesus. This is what we look at as a church and go, this, this. Like this is, I want you to understand, this is what Paul is saying in part when he looks at the Thessalonians. He says, listen, hey, everybody pay attention. You see these guys? Like this, this. Like do this. So you go, okay, great. You got us convinced. What's the this? OK, chapter one, watch this. Here's what he says to him. As he begins in the first couple of verses, verse three, he says, "We remember before our God and Father your — here it is. Watch this: your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ." I think this is what Paul's indicating. Did you catch a couple important words in there, by the way? One more time, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope, faith, hope, love. Remember, this is the first letter that we believe Paul wrote to any of the churches. So here's what's interesting. Go over to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and in this particular part of his letter to them, he's writing about some of the marks of growing and maturing in Jesus, what it looks like, what what it's defined by. And I want you to watch what he boils all of it down to. It's what he sees, what he saw happening in the church in Thessalonica. So chapter 13, verse 11, goes this way. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. He's not just talking about physically. This is like spiritually. He's talking about growing up spiritually. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. And then we shall see face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall be known fully even as I am fully known. And here it is, watch. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I think what Paul witnessed happening in Thessalonica was so impactful to him. That it became part of the challenge in how he wrote to every other church to come then and across time and space to you and I right now. Here is who you should be as the people of God: those who are defined by drip, live, and are known to be people of faith, hope, and love. Now, what does that mean? Like, how how do you walk out of here and go, I don't, I don't, okay, faith, hope, and love, check? What do we do? Well, that's going to be the next couple of weeks. I want to give you just a very quick description, and then the next several weeks is going to be leaning very heavy into each of these ideas. How we are a people of love. How we are a people that work like Paul says. How we are a people that endure like Paul says. But let me give you just quick definitions, and then the next several weeks, this is the content of where we're going to continue to go. Because you have to understand, as Paul writes, Paul's not writing in English like we're reading. Paul's writing in Greek. The Greek language is very different than our English language. It's much more poetic, it's complex. What we might use one or two words to translate an English word into, Paul's gonna need four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten words for us to translate from Greek into English, especially if you go into Hebrew as well. So as you look at the Greek words that he's using here, when he kind of puts some handles to faith, hope, and love, with faith it's work, with love it's labor, with hope it's endurance, as you look at the particular nature of how he's using these Greek words, I actually think it creates a statement for us that we can kind of hang our hat on. So we know how do you walk out of here, and how do we, if Paul's saying this, you pay attention to these guys, do this, like here's what the this is, okay? So for example, the first one, work produced by faith. When, when Paul's talking about work here, the, the word he's using for work speaks specifically to your occupation, like your day-to-day, what it is that you're doing for a job, for your employment. And when he's talking about the word faith, the particular usage of this word faith is a reference more to like winning somebody over or persuading somebody. So you put these two ideas together and I really believe that part of what Paul is acknowledging at work in this group of people that he's saying this is how you all should live is simply this statement on your screens. They embraced their earthly profession as their spiritual placement. Their earthly profession as their spiritual placement. Whether they, listen, whether you stay-at-home parent, Firefighter, police officer, lawyer, doctor, broker and investor, whatever it is that you do for a living, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is by his design and desire that that place would be one of your primary places of influence and impact. And you're like, well, I don't always like my job. Hey, guess what? I don't either. But this is where God's called us. And it's who he's called you to. And part of what's happening with the Thessalonians that Paul's taking note of and going, this is really interesting. They really believe that where they work is where God wants to use them. They don't just see it as the means by which to pay their bills. And hopefully we can get home soon so then we can go to church where we're going to have impact inside the walls of a building. Because if all the places of commerce and business and industry began to be influenced by the Christians and the followers of Jesus in there, loving people, sharing the message of Jesus, if those places begin to be impacted, what does that change and transform? Everything. Everything. And so Paul acknowledges, wow, this is a group of men and women that really believe that where they are as followers of Jesus is where he will use them to have kingdom and spiritual impact. Do you? Or can you just, like, not wait to get out of there and get home? Your coworker is annoying. You can't stand the sound of her voice on the phone. Your boss is obnoxious. This isn't what you thought you'd ever see yourself doing. All of that may be very true, but here's what's truer. If you're a follower of Jesus and that's where you presently are, that's where he presently longs to use you. Here's the second thing that Paul, again, we'll go more into this in the weeks to come. Here's the second thing that Paul acknowledged. Labor prompted by love. So the word labor here that he's using isn't so much a reference to what they're doing to work as the exhaustion that comes on the other side of it. So when he uses this particular Greek word for labor, he's really talking about them being exhausted from whatever it was that they did. It doesn't matter what they did. It's more reference to the fact that they're exhausted on the other side of it. Now, when he uses the word love here, the particular intent for the word love is more mercy, generosity. As a matter of fact, he actually uses this very word at one point to confront another church, the the church in Philippi, for not being charitable to their neighbors. So again, mash these words up. And here's what I think Paul is acknowledging and noticing at work in this church and community of Christ followers is that they are wearing themselves out for the benefit of other people. They are so committed to their community that they're exhausting themselves to the benefit of other people. I've just had to think all week like, when was the last time I wore myself out for somebody else? I wear myself out for my hobbies, I wear myself out for mountain biking. I wear myself out for my wife, for my kids. I wear myself out for this church. But when was the last time I just saw somebody that had a need and I just chose that I would get nothing in response for it and I'm just gonna wear my, I'm gonna exhaust myself for your benefit. When was the last time you did? You know, one of the things that we do a lot is when we see somebody, super simple application, we see somebody in need or like somebody maybe got out of the hospital, had a procedure Somebody just had a kid. What do we say a lot of times? Hey, let me know if you need anything. What do we think in the back of our head? I really hope you don't. <laughs> right? Because there's a rare occasion where you're like, hey, let me know if you need anything. And they're like, well, actually. And you're like, crap. <laughs> like, I do not think you would actually ask. And, and most of the time we don't ask. Why? Because we don't want to impose. Why? Because that's our way of life. We don't want to be worn out and we don't want to impose. But that's not the way of Jesus. And that's why Paul sees something different in this group and goes, man, that's that's what's changing things here. This group of people is living very countercultural because they're actually wearing themselves out on the benefit of other people. So maybe the next time you're in a situation where you're inclined to say, hey, let me know if you need anything, don't even say it. Just take time that week to go do something. Doesn't matter what it is, just do something. Put yourself out for somebody else. And then lastly, Paul says to them this, and he acknowledges their endurance inspired by hope. The word hope that he uses here is more about expectation, something to yet come, the future of what isn't yet but will one day be. And then when he talks about endurance, it's the idea of patience and perseverance, choosing not to buckle under the weight of difficult circumstances. So this is kind of mashed together what I think he's acknowledging in this group of people is that as they continue to, get pressed against, they press on. They don't cave in. They don't buckle. They don't give up. As a matter of fact, much of the second letter, second Thessalonians that Paul will write to them is to encourage them under the constant strain of pressure coming against them. People being martyred and killed. And there are moments where they're like, what is going on? And Paul continues to challenge them, continues to encourage them. But what he notices in them is that they press on and on no matter how much they get pressed against. I think that there is a dangerous phenomenon in Christianity today where we have so separated our hope of tomorrow from the pain of today that we buckle under everything, that we have no strength to withstand the difficulty of life, the difficulty of the journey of faith, that we just kind of cave. And part of it is not because, well, it's not that difficult. No, life is difficult. Life is definitely heavy enough that it should collapse us but there is a truth that we have a hope and a glory to come that tells us this world, no matter what it takes from you, does not win. And for some of you, it has taken immensely. And the only way you're still standing is because you believe that no matter how much has been taken, how painful it is, you have pressed on no matter what is pressed against because this world doesn't win. And when we believe that, the world takes note of it because without that kind of hope, we buckle. And so Thessalonica's paying attention, going, man, even as we keep killing them, they keep standing strong. And so Paul acknowledges, here here is where your endurance is making an impact. Listen, I really believe if we could learn from these people who were just like us, they lived in a different time, and they dressed different, and they ate different, and there was those obvious differences, but at the heart of what it means to be a human, they're just like you and I, they loved their families, they raised their children, they wanted to have a good life, they wanted to contribute. People just like us that did not have any goal to transform the world, but as they allowed God to transform them, that's exactly what they did. God was using them to then transform the world. If we would learn to be such people and not just make this a religious thing to go to church and go home from church, but we'll say, I want to be like that, I want to be like we sang, then so will I, then so will I, then so will I. telling you, that's where we will experience the power of God, not just experience a church service, but the power of God that changes lives, that changes marriages, that changes families, that changes neighborhoods, that changes workspaces, that changes cities, that changes the world, that would lead to us possibly getting our own letter from Paul of saying, well done, Kensington, this, do that, and do more of that, and may even have it said of us, those people are turning this dang world upside down. God, I want to be a person like that, and I pray that you would help us to be people like that, to be people so committed to you that our goal isn't to turn the world upside down, but our goal is to allow you to turn our lives upside down, and that as you do, we would experience you in such real and powerful and transcendent ways that we know your joy, we know your patience, we know your love, we know your grace, we know you ever increasingly, more and more. And as that spills out of us, would I pray, God, you use it to transform everything around us. May we learn from those who went before us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.